Hi, thank you for listening to the Spotlight Report, our weekly podcast in which we sit down and speak with current academics about their life and research in lab. If you like the Spotlight Report, you can subscribe on iTunes, like our Facebook page, or find it on any common podcast app. You can also directly find the podcast on our website, which is loft.optics.arizona.edu backslash podcast. Please comment any questions or ideas for people you would like us to interview in the future. Additionally, if you have more feedback, feel free to email us at thespotlightreport at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. This is Spotlight Report, and this week we are speaking with Dr. Christine Bradley. Um, so, Dr. Bradley, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's yeah. great to be here. Um, so, I guess to start off with, we can ask, what brought you into optics? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's pretty typical for anyone that lives in Arizona that they normally know what optics is. Um, I was not one of those people. <laughs> I grew up in Sierra Vista, which is pretty close to Tucson. Um, but I came here uh, to the university and started off as chemical engineering, actually. But then I realized that chemistry is not fun. I liked all the things. All the things I liked about chemistry was actually physics. <laughs> so I changed to physics. But I was really lucky um, in that I was able to work in a research group um, my first summer in college. And it was an, an REU program through NSF. And so they took us around to a bunch of labs on campus and we got to choose which lab we wanted to work in and stuff. And that's kind of when I got introduced to optics. Um, so my first job really was, uh, I was working in an analytical chemistry lab oh. on explosive detection. <laughs> and I had to babysit this homemade Raman spectrometer. And that thing was really finicky. <laughs> and I, I remember knowing absolutely nothing and I had to align a new laser to the instrument And I could not, for the life of me, figure out how a simple positive lens worked. So it wasn't incredibly intuitive, but it was a challenge, and I did have a lot of fun. And then eventually I finally changed to optics. Finally seen the light. (laughs) So, yeah. So so did you like math? Uh, Yeah, I've always liked math Um, ever since I was young. That was, like, one of my better subjects. I didn't like it. And Mm -hmm. then at some point, like, later in optics, I started to really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's like, a point of entry thing that I've heard is that, oh, if you like math, you probably like physics. And if you like physics, you might like optics. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because for me, it's like, well, I like math and physics, but I'm not so good at both. <laughs> so I think maybe optics like a combination, so maybe not so high requirements for it. So I just choose it. I do feel like there there is that route in optics. Like you yeah. can be, um, you don't have to do like the really intense math. Yeah. You can mm-hmm. stick to a lot of paraxial type things yeah, and then it makes it a little easier. I mean, mostly I, in polarization, it's mostly trigonometry, geometry. Um, linear algebra, but that's just like linear algebra to me is mostly just like bookkeeping at that point. It's not like it's any more difficult. You're just 
keeping track of different dimensions, yeah, right? Yeah. So it's all it all really boils down to geometry, which is really basic and something you start learning when you're really young. <clears throat> I, I still have to do this whole Sokotoa thing <laughs> when I'm when I'm doing my math here. So okay, so uh, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, so the dissertation is about the polarization. Mm -hmm. uh, do you mind uh, tell us what is the polarization? Maybe to those people who are not in optics field, right. maybe for child, or, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so polarization is a pretty hard concept to portray. So normally. Mm -hmm. You look really ridiculous when you're trying to sh tell people that light acts as a wave, and so it wiggles. And see, here I am, like, wiggling my hands. This is the sort of thing you do when you talk about polarization. But when I'm talking to kids, um, generally I'll, I'll say that, yeah, light can be a wave, and it wiggles, and that orientation that it wiggles in is its polarization. So one way to really kind of get that point across is to refer to animals. It sounds really silly. <laughs> but if you, my friend does this, and I love it, Zella is the greatest for coming up with this, but if you think of a snake and how a snake moves, it's it's moving on the ground oh, and swiveling so around, right? So it that ground is the plane of oscillation, that and that is, is so the polarization. Um, if you think of a, like a rabbit hopping, like an, an animated character, it's going to be hopping up and down, and it's going to be having like kind of a vertical polarization state, is what we would say. Wow. So yeah, that's one way that I, we've in when we go and do outreach for polarization. That's one way that we kind of introduce it. Um, not a lot of people. Um, that we go and do outreach for, in particular, like different socioeconomic classes, haven't even seen 3D movies, so you can't even refer to those. That's normally my my like point of reference. It's like, oh, think about a 3D movie, but right. I, the animal one I really like. Yeah, the animal one is pretty good. You think of a snake or a rabbit. That's so true. And it's still straightforward. In the case, so in the case of 3D movies, uh, or like polarized sunglasses. Mm -hmm. Could you explain why they work? Sure. Yeah, so well, with a 3D movie, um, you have different polarization states over each eye, basically. So you have a film that allows you to see polarization because our eyes are insensitive to it. Um, so you need to have some sort of filter that allows you to pick out just one state. And so with a 3D movie, what they're doing is actually portraying or showing two slightly offset images on top of one another, but they're, I think they're oscillating at a particular rate so that your brain can perceive them. But really what's happening is your left eye is picking up one image and your right eye is picking up the other image. And it's the same concept as those red, green, or the mm -hmm. red, blue, um, except now instead of using colors as a filter, we're using polarization as a filter. So then your brain can superimpose it and create a 3D image. For the case of polarized sunglasses, when you're outside, um, they're really good at cutting out road glare. So if you're driving and the sun happens to be setting in front of you and you have a huge glare coming up um, from the, the asphalt um, and you need to be able to see the road, you can put on these polarized sunglasses. So it's actually the same state now over both eyes. And they're actually vertically polarized. Um, because the light that's reflected from the ground in that orientation is going to be horizontally polarized. So we want to block only horizontally polarized light, and then you have you can see the road without minimizing other areas. Like, so you can finally you can actually see your scene. <laughs> so it's more selective when you have polarized sunglasses rather than just what we call an attenuator, 
um, where everything dims at the same rate or the mm-hmm. same same magnitude. So I think I think both of those examples were like those were some of the things in optics that were the most intuitive to me for saying like it's really useful. Mm-hmm. Like it's really obvious to someone like oh you put on your polarized sunglasses and it's optics is practical mm-hmm. and I can use them or like in the case of three D movies you're gaining or you're kind of reaching into this other dimension for getting information. So instead of just color, it's also polarization. Right. And, th- and that's what's cool about optics and just EM waves in general is just that there's all these different characteristics that you can utilize. And so I always th- go back to um, a class that we took in undergrad. It's the optical communications class. Was that Millerad? Uh, I didn't have Millerad. I had Franco Coopers. Okay. Because um, I'm, I'm older. <laughs> um so I, but I remember like it was the coolest thing to be sending information fibers and using phase and wavelength yeah. and polarization to encode all of this information. And so you can have higher data rates. And so it's really cool that you could utilize basically all these different characteristics to make sure they don't interfere with one another and there's no loss of information. So it's incredibly useful. Um, and it was really cool to see as an undergrad and then get, get excited about those different aspects. But Yeah. It's, it's nuts, especially in fibers. I think it's lost on just about everyone that, like, from here to next year, we might have really more high-def video, which everyone kind of is like, oh, okay, of course. Mm-hmm. But if you went back 10 years and showed it, they'd be like, that's impossible. Right, And, yeah. it, and it's using all these things. So. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, but, so from polarization, could you give a brief rundown of your dissertation, like your research? Okay. Um, Yeah, so my research is uh, an earth science application using polarization. So like I said, we have all these different characteristics of light that we can utilize and we can um, either send information like we were with optical fibers or we can do have a passive system that will measure um, magnitude, so intensity of the wave, the color, um, which is referring to the wavelength and polarization and and sometimes phase. So um, I worked with a group, a close uh, closely with a group at Jet Propulsion Laboratory, um, who they they basically built a prototype polarimetric imager um, to measure aerosol information in the atmosphere. So my research, because they are are actually sending this instrument now to space. It was finally accepted. And That's awesome. Yeah, they won their grant. So they're going to be sending it to space, which is pretty cool. Um, what they want to do is look downward at the Earth and have just aerosol formation over urban areas. So there are some challenges with that now because uh, when you're looking down at the Earth, you're getting reflectance from the Earth's surface in addition to the aerosol information, so mm-hmm. light scattered from the aerosols. So if you want to be left with just aerosol information, you need to be able to um, model or characterize the Earth's reflectance to subtract that out from your data and be left with just aerosols. So that's what I did for my research, basically, was help them characterize the Earth's reflectance or reflection characteristics so that they can finally put that into their, well, build upon their aerosol retrieval algorithm. Hmm. And um, I used a ground-based polarimeter 
to kind of do these studies. So I was close up to the ground. I didn't have atmosphere um, in my data, really. So I had to think about the path radiance. So light will come in from the sun um, and go through our atmosphere. And sometimes that can polarize that light before it hits the surface. Um, but really, most of the time, if you have a strong direct illumination from the sun, it's mostly unpolarized. So we kind of consider that to be our starting point. We have unpolarized light coming into the Earth's surface that can reflect about in all these different directions. And so I was basically <laughs> tasked to measure a, a bunch of different scenes around campus <laughs> in hot Tucson summers, I might add. Um, and really that... Uh, gave us a lot of data to work with. And so I can kind of build up statistics based on region types. So um, it's definitely a different resolution than what you would see from a space instrument, but it's a good starting point. So we were able to build upon um, some analytical models that they've been using and uh, also verify certain assumptions. They make a pretty, I feel like it's a bold assumption. They basically say that the reflection for um, a surface is going to be the same magnitude and angular distribution for all wavelengths. And so they call that the spectral invariance hypothesis. And computationally, that's really useful for them because then they can say, oh, all wavelengths are the same. I don't have to do this computation again. You know, that makes it very simple. But um, it's been verified with some other satellite instruments. And they see that, like, for the most part, you can make that assumption, but I found in graduate school that's not necessarily the case for a particular region type, which is vegetation. Mm -hmm. And so that brought me into a whole study that was kind of the bane of my existence. I didn't, we didn't expect to have to find something like that. And then I didn't have to, ex I didn't expect that I had to basically come up with an explanation for yeah. all of that. So it really, and I guess that's just research. You can keep digging and digging for however long you want. But. It's, I mean, I'm amazed that the, the what is it, spectral invariance mm -hmm. uh, hypothesis held true for as many things as it did. Yeah, it's honestly. actually pretty surprising. But if you consider um, the index of refraction change per wavelength, um, it isn't much for a lot of surfaces. Mm -hmm. So really, the only surface type that the index of refraction was much, much different between wavelengths was for vegetation because I was dipping into the near-infrared. And so vegetation is highly reflective in the near-infrared because if it absorbs that, it basically heats itself and then it dies. Right. So, so the leaves will absorb the visible wavelengths but then reflect out the harmful wavelengths so that it'll survive. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so you have highly absorbing in visible wavelengths but you have highly reflecting in the mm -hmm. near-infrared. And so that index of refraction change basically within the cell structure and the chlorophyll of leaves will cause this discrepancy between the wavelengths. Mm -hmm. wow. so. so during the measurements, do you met any challenges? Yeah, well, <laughs> so when you work with prototype instruments, they don't necessarily work all the time. Um, and I have to say that in graduate school, I didn't mm -hmm. really do a lot of like hands-on optics. I, I was able to align um, a prototype. Uh, the So we have different prototypes of the same instrument. So I worked with ground MISB, and then there's air MISB and air MISB2, and then finally space MISB, which is actually called Maya. Um, but I was able to help with the alignment of Aramis V2, and that was probably the most optics 
thing I did in graduate school. For the most part, my job was to be kind of a systems engineer, it seemed like. Um, and I had to troubleshoot a lot of electronics problems with the instrument. Um, and so we did start off with kind of like a bulky setup. And then we were able to... Um, compact it and make it a little bit smaller and easier to use. And we were able to utilize a Celestron telescope mount that allowed us to point our camera in all these different directions if we program it to, um, which made our data collection a lot easier. But the problem is is that now there's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of cables and there's a lot of things that could go wrong. And um, someone made a power distribution board by hand rather than getting it a printed circuit board and so um, maybe our second year into having this new setup a lot of we were having experiencing a lot of shortages in our system and so it would like kind of kill itself and then um, some there was a really fun problem that took me I think five years to find out why it was happening Um, but sometimes the because you could program it to slew in all these different directions so it can like look azimuthly or an elevation And sometimes when you would program it, it would just start like wrapping itself around over and over, going a whole 360 degrees, like billions of times. And then all of the cables (laughs) attached to the instrument would start to wrap itself around and then it would just like choke itself and then just like kill itself. And so it would have like a mind of its own. So we termed it poltergeisting. Um, (laughs) Yeah, there's some fun challenges when it comes to this. But what was the problem? um, There's a there's a cable that goes from the actual computer and the camera head to the telescope mount, and there was a a small short in that. That I had, I had to rip the whole wire apart, and I finally found it. I was like, it makes so much sense. And it took a lot of troubleshooting to find it, like bypassing other places, all these other wires. Yeah. I had to make my own RS-232, like, connector and all of these things. And then I, it, con- it connects to, um, an, like, an RJ-11 type connector on the telescope mount, but it wasn't quite an RJ-11. So it took me quite a while to find out which connector. There were, like, a lot of – so those were the type of things that I had to do. I had to share – you know that you're getting really, really into your research when you have to share a hotel room with your instrument. And then you find yourself, you find yourself like actually soldering things together in your hotel room. You're like, this is, this is graduate school. This is what I'm doing. <laughs> things you do. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it's like sounds like thumb but pinfold combined together. Yeah, and sometimes it's really stressful. So um, if you're actually getting paid by NASA to go and take data for a particular purpose. There are these measurement campaigns that they do. You have, you want to get your data. You have to get your data to say, okay, I spent your money and this is the science we want to do. But unfortunately the instrument didn't work that day, Mm -hmm. you know? So those type of things were really stressful. And that's when you're in your hotel room soldering stuff together (laughs) and trying to get it to work. Um, but and luckily, I have always been able to take the data for the most part when we really needed to, when it was like a big campaign like that. Um, sometimes uh, when we have new students come on board, they will take data for us, and sometimes the instrument wouldn't work the way that we thought it would and things like that. So sometimes we would lose data. But for the most part, we have close to like 10,000 data scans or something. Um, 
that I've we've been taking for the past seven or eight years because I started as an undergrad basically huh. uh, on this project. So, so can we can we step back just for a second? Sure. And you mentioned that there were maybe two ground-based polarimeters, uh, skies. Can you just talk about what those instruments actually are besides mm-hmm. oh, okay. having culture guys like <laughs> characteristics and kind of like how they, what they measure? Sure. So um, they all have the same measurement architecture. So there's one ground base. So that's the one that I used. Um, and I guess MSP, MSPI is an acronym for Multi-Angle Spectral Polarimetric Imager. So multi-angle because um, this instrument builds upon an idea of an instrument that's already in space. It's called MISER on the Terra satellite. And it has nine cameras. And so those cameras point at the Earth at different angles. So you have one pointing directly down at the Earth. And then you have um, four cameras pointed forward at different angles. And then four cameras pointed backward at different angles. And that allows you to measure what they call the scattering phase function. Um, so basically light that is interacting with an aerosol in the atmosphere can scatter light in different directions. So if you think about um, the solid angle that light can be scattered, it's four pi radians. It's all, it's uniform. It's all in all these different directions. Well, it's not quite uniform depending on the scattering phase function, but... Don't worry, Barrett's not here. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> that was a hard yeah, but so having multi-angular capability allows you to measure what we call the scattering phase function or the BRDF, so bidirectional reflectance distribution function of a particular surface. So there's that capability of this instrument. We also have nine wavelengths that we measure um, intensity. And then three of those wavelengths are polar metric measurements. Okay. And Polarimetric measurements means that we're measuring the Stokes parameters. So you can basically represent polarization of light using three numbers. Well, it's technically four numbers, but in Earth science um, and for our environment, the circular polarization isn't very prominent. So we've um, engineered and designed this instrument to utilize um, measurements that will only give us information about the linear polarization state. And so if you have these three numbers for a particular aerosol, and then you have that for three wavelengths at all these different angles, now you have a big toolbox, basically, Mm -hmm. right, where you can now further constrain a radiative transfer problem. So if you even consider any sort of radiative transfer problem, it's completely overwhelming in terms of how many variables you have and how, what, how many things that can, um, how many parameters can actually change the way that things scatter and be absorbed and all those sort of things. So if you can add any more information, just like an optical fiber, you mm-hmm. can add more of these characteristics and you can have higher data rates. Well, if we add in polarization, now we can further characterize these surfaces better. Right. right. Less unknowns. And, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So um, the way that MISP does this, so you can use a digital camera with a polarizer in front and measure Stokes parameters outside. That just requires you to take an image um, at one, what we call polarization analyzer position, um, which means that you can have it at horizontally polarized, take an image, move it to 90 degree polarized, take an image, 45, 135, take an image. And then you can kind of build up what your polarization looks like in these outdoor scenes. Now. 
that becomes difficult because to find the Stokes parameters, you have to take each of those images and either add them or subtract them from one another. And so if you imagine now, I have one image taken with one analyzer position and then another one and a different one. If I subtract those two and I happen to bump my camera between those two images, you're going to have some artifacts because there's going to be like some line detection type things going on. You're going to see some really weird things in your image. So you have to keep that in mind. If that's what you're doing, don't bump the camera <laughs> as much. And if you do see it, you know that it's probably because there was some misalignment between those two images. And there are some algorithms and some functions now in MATLAB and Mathematica that you can use that will do more of an image registration. Mm -hmm. um, so it, that problem isn't as bad. But the bigger problem now <clears throat> so I'm talking about a now a misalignment between the images, but what happens if we're outside and it takes, you know, a couple seconds between each image and it happens to be a cloudy day? Well, what happens if I take that zero degree polarization image and then I take a 90 degree polarization image after that, but then there's a cloud that moves over the sun? So if there's any sort of weird int intensity fluctuation that changes from each of these images, it's going to show up as a polarization signature. And so that intensity difference from the sun not being covered and the sun being covered is going to show up as polarization, which isn't the case really. So those are the fun challenges when it comes to having some sort of subtractive method of measurements. Um, so what we do with our instrument is we actually vary our polarization analyzer um, using photoelastic modulators. So those are, it's a, it's a crystal that's attached to a piezoelectric mm -hmm. transducer. And what happens is it, it applies a voltage across that crystal. And by applying that voltage, it changes the retardance of the piece, basically, so that you're allowed to mm -hmm. now modulate that polarization analyzer. And uh, it happens really rapidly. So you actually have to have a second one right behind it at a different frequency, slightly different frequency. So now you have a beep frequency um, oh. that the retardance is actually modulating at that you can measure now with our technology in um, CCD arrays and things like that. Huh. Um, so now that's how we measure it and it's, it's rapidly changing. So you basically measure this modulation pattern and then you can do your analysis on that and back out your polarization information. Hmm. So um, the, it's actually quite clever the way that they did this yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, and because of how they do it that means that they're able to measure the degree of linear polarization so how much uh, the accuracy in, in measuring how much the light is actually polarized to within half a percent um, which is what is needed in these earth science applications so we're looking at very very small signatures of polarization when we're considering scattering from the atmosphere or even from um, exoplanets and things like that. So even when you start getting into some astronomy folks are doing, um, are building circular polarization measurement instruments that are basically looking for organic life um, because of the structure of the rings for the carbon, uh, the carbon rings. Apparently that will induce a chirality in the electric uh, electromagnetic field. So they're measuring super, super small circular polarization signatures on those worlds to see if there's any sort of science of life. Okay, that's wild. Yeah. I had no idea they were doing that. Yeah. 
So is that a reason why? Is that a reason? So you you use a linear polarization instead of a circular. So if you're, I haven't done a lot of circular polarization studies on something like vegetation or mm-hmm. anything like that.、Um, but for linear polarization, if we're only really、uh, interested in atmospheric、mm-hmm. effects,、um, the biggest. Thing that we notice is it's linearly polarized、yeah. due to、um, the light coming in and how the light is、uh, the Lorentz force on the actual molecules、mm-hmm. are vibrating the actual molecules and re-rating that light. It happens to be in a particular plane when you look at it in particular directions.、Mm-hmm. So we are mostly just concerned with linear polarization,、right. but I imagine that you could do a circular polarization study on vegetation, and maybe this is why they decided to try to. Use this method for astronomy.、Mm-hmm. So. Cool.、Um, so you talked earlier that you measured、uh, a bunch of different scenes.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm just going to assume it was a ton of fun being in <laughs> Tucson in the summer measuring scenes.、Uh-huh. Uh, so what did you? Yeah. So a what did you measure and what was that process like? Because I know another grad student right now. Who has to take measurements from the roof,、mm-hmm. uh, and she is not loving it.、It's、yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a okay. So when it when we first started off,、um, when the system was not autonomous, that was absolutely miserable. And you were because you were tethered to that machine. You had to like press a button every 15 minutes. Like you're sitting out on the roof. We melted canopies. Like it was so hot. It was awful. I was pretty sure that we were going to kill undergrads. Like. <laughs> I probably shouldn't mention this,、um, but yeah, like it, it was kind of miserable. But then when we finally built an autonomous system, so we could sit inside of, because I was also taking measurements out on the roof,、mm-hmm. um, we can sit inside of the stairwell,、oh. and then I can just easily program in the measurements I wanted to take. And because we are concerned with BRDF studies, the bidirectional reflection distribution studies, it was actually useful to take a measurement of the same scene. All day, and the reason why we would do that is because the sun is changing its position in the sky、uh, mm-hmm. for each of these timestamps, which basically provides our different illumination directions. So we were maintaining our same view direction, but we would have to take the same scene all day long. So you were there from sunrise to sunset, out on the roof. Sometimes people could not come and give you a break, so you couldn't go and get your lunch and <laughs> stuff like that because it's an ITAR. Instrument, so、mm-hmm. you had to babysit it. You had to be with it.、Um, so there were definitely some challenges. <laughs>、um, the hard days were when we actually were off campus, because our system's pretty portable,、mm-hmm. um, and it operates off of using a, a solar panel. Actually, so we didn't. We could basically go anywhere. And、mm-hmm. so there was one time I was. I don't know if you know the Vactor Ranch boot in Tucson. There's this big cement boot. Oh, way out east. Yes. Yeah. So, I had I camped out there all day taking measurements of this boot, <laughs> and I think that is my least favorite data set because it was it just brings back how horrible that day was. It was so hot. It was like it was April seventeenth, and it was already like a hundred degrees outside. Yeah. And. There was barely any shade, and at that point, we melted all of our canopies, so we didn't have any canopies, and there was really no way for me to park my car in such a way that I could sit in air conditioning. And yeah, I'm just being whiny, but <laughs> well, it's hard. No, I mean that sounds pretty brutal. It's、and、hard, yeah. For people who aren't from Tucson, 
it's important to to realize that Tucson can get up to 115 degrees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and when you when you step outside, it's like when we find the closest shade and then the closest indoor area. Exactly. So being stuck outside sounds really unpleasant. Yeah, it was it was hard. And it was uh, there were two of us there, so at least we could like relieve one another yeah. and like take breaks in the local like the. Safeway that was close by. Yeah. We would just like walk around Safeway because there was air conditioning. <laughs> yeah. So, but there's things that you have to do in order to like get the data. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Oh. Yeah. So how how you guys choose different place? Like, um. So a... initially, it started off with like learning how to use the instrument and really fine tuning all of that. But when we finally started, when I finally started getting into my research, um, you kind of were like, I was particularly for the spectral invariance hypothesis one, I realized that I really just need to build up statistics on different region types. And so for me, it didn't necessarily matter um, exactly what was uh, in the scene, except that if it was variable, then it was more beneficial for me. So then I could pick out like a cement region versus a dirt region, grass region, and things like that. So actually being on campus, there were five prominent region types. So that was uh, in alphabetical order, (laughs) (laughs) asphalt, brick, cement, dirt, and grass. And so those were the five region types that I studied. But we started getting into... um, some surface observations, uh, since we were able to have a high resolution of these mm-hmm. scenes. Yeah. So what's cool about polarization now is that we were able to pick out like a rough surface type. So the stupid boot, <laughs> for example, <laughs> was made out of cement. Um, so it was actually rough and it was interesting because it was following some characteristics that we were seeing for just flat surfaces, even though it had the structure to it. Oh. Um, and so now we can using polarization and the angle of linear polarization, so the, the plane that the light is actually oscillating in, mm-hmm. we can pick out the surface orientation mm-hmm. of a particular object, oh, depending on its roughness, um, depending on the illumination, if it was an overcast day or if it was um, directly illuminated by the sun, um, and things like that. So it, we were able to actually do a lot more once we started realizing that there are these different characteristics that we can look at um, using the angle of linear polarization, which actually hasn't really been published a whole lot on. Um, generally, if you look at the literature for polarization in outdoor environments, uh, they're more concerned with degree of linear polarization, so how much the light is actually polarized. Um, but there's actually quite a bit of useful information when you actually consider the angle as well. Mm-hmm. So that was probably the coolest thing that like clicked in yeah. graduate school. I was like, oh, now I can use this for my research. That's great. Huh. So I, I kind of was able to build off of that and further investigate the vegetation. So. And you had so you in in your um, dissertation, you say that you you guys ran into issues measuring grass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was basically because it didn't, we saw that, like I mentioned, the spectral invariance hypothesis. We found, uh, or I found, that the grass measurements just were not following that assumption mm-hmm. at all, even though there were plenty of papers that said it should. And, <laughs> um, and so here I am going against these, you know, 60 year old men that have been researching this for 30 years and, and 40 years of literature is saying that and everyone it just obviously assumes you're right right oh <laughs> uh, well so I found this problem my first year of graduate school 
Um, and then I went to a conference and I presented my work and I have never felt so bad. <laughs> Someone in the audience did not appreciate my work because um, clearly I was wrong and what my, my instrument was measuring is clearly wrong. And, you know, as a new graduate student, so frustrating. Yeah, it, it's frustrating, but also very discouraging. Because um, you're like, well, clearly I don't know what I'm doing, and I thought that things were going okay. and <laughs> um, But then you, you start really thinking about it. You're like, okay, well, this is what I have. How do I verify this? Mm -hmm. How do I validate what I'm measuring? And things of that nature. So... That was a big lesson learned. So don't just go blabbering your mouth about something <laughs> if you can't back it up. So that was huge. So I ended up validating my results with a second instrument um, using a different experiment um, and, and seeing that I was getting something very similar. And then I um, kind of I used a, a, a different method in order to pick out regions where there was a specular reflection off of leaves rather than just a, a diffuse scattering from leaves. Mm. And so once I was able to just pick out only specular reflections, then I found that it matched the spectral invariance hypothesis. So when it didn't interact with chlorophyll is when it, oh, it's wow. good. But when it actually did interact with the chlorophyll, chlorophyll and was reflecting or scattering back out, that's when it didn't fit. Uh -huh. And so that's something that you kind of have to consider. So it was basically just a major index of refraction difference um, between the, the wavelengths. And so that's why it wasn't working. Oh. So now that I know that, <laughs> it, it would have been much better five years, six years ago. <laughs> so, yeah. So do you, I think that that's like a, a really important point and kind of stepping aside from, from your research, which is really interesting, but uh, running into that first experience where you're like, I think this is, the entire point of the sciences is theoretically you're supposed to prove something new. Right. Which means a lot of times you're disproving other people. Right. And a lot of times when you tell someone like, no, 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 I'm certain that yours is, I'm certain mine is right and that happens to mean yours is wrong. Right. You don't get a good reaction. Right. So do you have any other? Yeah. Um, you know, the way to really approach that, I, I didn't, I felt like I didn't really take it very well um, when it first happens, but come, like thinking back on it, uh, the guy just means well, mm -hmm. honestly. It was hard to take at that, at that moment. <laughs> but you need to realize you are challenging their life's work. Um, you do need to be more tactful about things. Um, don't I, I don't think it's great to have this pompous attitude. Um, say, I'm right. I'm definitely right without being able to back it up. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the biggest thing is, is that you just need to keep an open mind um, we're in the sciences, we're going to be critical of one another, um, and you, you can't really take it personally, right? Actually, because this guy was kind of mean to me, <laughs> um, I was actually able to find something really cool. And it kind of just pushed me to investigate it further and further and really get a good handle of what was going on rather than kind of just giving up completely and backing away and quitting grad school and thinking, okay, this isn't for me. You kind of have to rise to those occasions and, and say, you know, challenge accepted. Mm -hmm. Go ahead and look at all these different ways of, you know, investigating this problem and hopefully it pans out. Mm -hmm. um, and if it doesn't, then you found a way that it doesn't work, right? Yeah. yeah. 
Um, one of my favorite things that I've seen in graduate school is my advisor, Russell Trittman. Um, he one year presented, I think, four or five times at SPIE at this one conference. But one of his talks was um, actually quite wonderful. It was how to not design a quarter wave plate or an achromatic wave plate, which is incredibly useful, yeah. right? You don't yeah. want to go down that path and realize, yeah. oh, this didn't work and waste all this time. So those those type of lessons are all, we do that to ourselves all the time. We don't publicly announce them, maybe because we're embarrassed by them. Yeah. You're like, oh, I made a dumb, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's almost like you're embarrassed to do that. But Honestly, if you're not doing that, then you're not really doing your job as a researcher. Mm -hmm. So I think in graduate school, it took me a long time to get to that point because I was always really ashamed if I did not know something. But then you have to realize <laughs> everyone's in the same boat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, you're not expected to know everything. You're expected to investigate. Yeah, I remember that because... I'm doing manufacturing stuff mm -hmm. here, and the, the pattern we are running here is totally different in China. Mm. So when I first come to the first floor, and I find myself just don't know all the stuff. And it's like, okay, you're a grad student, you're doing this, you should have some background on it. And you mentioned that you have some background on it, and it turned out to be you know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> And it's just so awkward because they are just some really fascinated uh, opticians mm -hmm. and they really got the tech technology. And every time they they would love to see how huh, what the new graduate students are doing right here. Yeah. And they want you to explain to them. And they always will give you, hmm, are you sure you gonna this gonna work? <laughs> I know. I think one of my my big like scary moments also is I. I was visiting JPL, um, it was also my first year of graduate school, um, kind of getting introduced to the problem a little bit more, and I had to go to um, their group meeting, mm -hmm. and they were arguing about a definition regarding polarized light, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> my boss at JPL looks at me and goes, oh, we have an expert here. <laughs> Can you explain? And I just like froze. So I'm like, what? Did you look behind you? <laughs> I'm like, oh, you actually expect me to say something. So I, I, I answered it the best I could. That's, you know, that's the best you can do. And I think that they're very understanding that you're starting out. Yeah. It's, I think, very unreasonable for a manager to just expect you as a graduate student your first year to know everything. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. that's true. I think I, if I were a professor and I hired a student and they were taking initiative to explore different ideas and to really dive into problems, I would find that more valuable than them just trying to blurt out answers to seem like they know things, mm -hmm. yeah. right? Yeah. And even like if you go, you go to talks all the time at conferences, it's not expected that you understand every talk fully. Most of the time I understand maybe... 30 to 60 percent depending on yeah. on the talk I never understand all of it um, and what's cool about that then is then you can approach those people and yeah. you can form questions and then you can build networks and then you mm -hmm. can actually start to have a really good community that you can always refer to yeah great yeah yeah so this is a really important part of a grad school life but another really important part is like you have to write your dissertation yes. and you have to so. yes which is so. hmm. <laughs> not my favorite I have to say because I am not the best writer um, 
So I can, I can investigate, I love doing the analysis, I love taking the data, I love playing with the instruments. When it comes to writing, it is not my favorite at all. Um, you can't be good at everything, I have to tell myself that. And so when it came to writing, I had to do a lot of iterations of the major chapters um, where I did most of the analysis, so the spectral invariance hypothesis and um, another uh, ray tracing thing that I did. But I think I went back and forth with uh, Russell, my advisor here, and Dave Diner um, at JPL, who was my boss there, on those two chapters in particular, just going back and forth and trying to figure out how to best say things and all this. Um, but what I found incredibly useful is I work closely with uh, Dr. Meredith Kapitsky, oh. and she is wonderful at she's just so disciplined at writing. <laughs> she was, she's just able to like get a paper out almost every month. Um, every month? Yeah, in this past semester, that's basically what she did. I needed to go talk to uh... She's amazing. Wow. <laughs> I know. She, and so what was nice, though, is that she pushed me more and more to write. And um, when if you go to like SPIE or a conference, generally you have to write a proceedings paper. And that's always a good starting place. Um, and what was nice was that Meredith was always writing when I was writing. Mm -hmm. And so I could easily just send her my paper. She could give me like quick edits or quick comments. And then um, as basically she would do the same to me. She would send me her paper and then mm -hmm. I would make comments. And then we kind of do that back and forth. So when you have a buddy and you work closely with them, um, it feels like you're kind of being, you're being motivated in a way because you actually are like, oh, well, she sent me her paper and I should send mine. She already gave me comments. I should give her comments. So <clears throat> for me, that was like a really good motivator because otherwise I don't think that I would have been as productive when it came to the actual writing. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I had no problems speaking about my research and no problems presenting my research, but actually in the written verse, it was probably the most difficult, so... When I, and then I can't sit in front of my computer for very long before I just start being unproductive and getting distracted. So I would leave and go for a hike, which you can do in graduate school, and yeah. then come back. <laughs> so, yeah. One of the perks. One of the great perks of graduate school, yeah. We, uh, that, we just talked to uh, Chase Salisbury mm -hmm. recently, and we were talking about you know, a lot of the things that are hard about grad school people don't talk about. One mm -hmm. of them was that, no one talks about how they are getting null results, which yeah. can be hard. And also that when you're up against challenges in terms of research or writing, uh, the things people turn to aren't always as healthy as hiking. So <laughs> hiking That's, sounds like a great one. Yeah, actually. So, I, I mean, I've um, maybe a little too personal here, but I, I've always struggled with depression. And so it's not a thing that will just like you can just like bat away easily. You kind of have to maintain it, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I found is most helpful is to just be outside. And I may not be actively doing work, mm -hmm. but if you're thinking about a problem, um, you can't just sit in front of your computer and you're like, if you've exhausted all the things yeah. that you wanted to try at that moment, you have to think about it. So I always found those moments to be really good um, to just like step away for a moment, go and do a hike, and then come back. Mm -hmm. And luckily, I mean, Gates Pass is really close by, so it's not like you're spending all day hiking. It's, it's really like maybe two hours or something right. off campus, and then you come back. Even, even for me, 
I've, I've experienced this where you'll be in the lab, you'll, for that day, much less that week, much less that month, you'll have gotten nowhere in research. Yeah. And it's yeah. this one problem, like, uh, like you said, you found what was causing the poltergeist activity. Mm-hmm. Or, like, I've had some, some issues with research, uh, and it's and you're stuck in the room, and there's no windows, yeah. and you're just like, this is awful. But you step outside, and even on a college campus, you step outside, and it's, it's in, tu- in Tucson, it's sunny, kids are all excited and happy, yeah. and you don't really understand <laughs> it for a while. But as you walk around, you start to like, oh, well, I'm, my mood gets better, and I, I agree with you, like, I feel like you can make kind of these breakthroughs about your research just when you're not so locked focused in and, yeah. yeah 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 I think it's good to take a step away mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that's hard to tell yourself when you're an overachiever and you feel like you have to be working right and you have you yeah. kind of have to tell yourself well you are working mm-hmm. and it's important for you to maintain your mental sanity mm-hmm. yeah. um, otherwise you're just not going to do any work um, so I always, I always recommend that people take more breaks, but sometimes it, it's to the person really, it, it all matters on yeah, how yeah. they feel. And I understand that other people are a little bit more anxious about getting their work done. Um, maybe that's why it took me six years, <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah. No, I, I think that's good advice. I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah, it's really good advice because people are easily to focus on one stuff mm-hmm. yeah. and they, and then they block themselves from others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and then I found, um, so so Russell is great when it comes to polarization, um, and so I would, if I'd had any polarization-related questions, I felt like those could be easily answered or addressed if I had a discussion with him. But then mm-hmm. there was this problem with, like, the poltergeisting, who do I talk to about this, you know? Yeah. How do I find out how to fix this? And so um, there are a bunch of things like that where you poke at things, get frustrated, leave, <laughs> come back and poke some more. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just like persistence. You just have to keep coming back, but you have to find a way to be okay about it. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So how about your future, considering you just graduated and got to move tomorrow? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I accepted an optical engineering position with Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Mm-hmm. So I am moving to L.A., the area L.A., um, and it looks like the group that I joined, they primarily focus on building hyperspectral instruments. So that's basically just measuring a bunch of wavelengths um, with very narrow wave bands. So you're basically building up like a continuous wave mm-hmm. function of, um, of the measured light. So they initially hired me, so I accepted this job in September, did not expect the election to go the way it did. So I was primarily supposed to be working on earth science instruments, um, but given the new NASA budget, I'm not so sure where that's going to go. Um, but there, we are going to be sending a hyperspectral instrument to Europa, um, so there's a possibility that I'll work on that. And there was also talk of having me um, use polarization to help characterize um, some effects they're seeing with star shades for coronagraphs. Hmm. So um, the great thing about JPL is that they're all, I mean, it's 70% science and 30% DOD work, but the, the type of problems that you get to work on and the type of applications for the science are really intriguing um, and super, super cool to just be able to be a part of that. I'm really excited. 
it sounds a lot it, compared to some optics jobs. It sounds a lot more similar to research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, know? exactly. And I've spent my past three summers there um, doing is, doing. Awesome. Yeah, it's so nice. I, I actually really love JPL. Um, it, it feels like a university, really. Um, the type I, but that could have been because I was working on my actual dissertation while I was there. <laughs> Who knows? Um, but I mean, it, it's very flexible. You come in, you work your hours, and then um, you, it seems like very hands off from your managers, and you kind of have your projects, and you get to go. And, mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It, you basically have a lot of autonomy. Um, from what I understand, and that's what I'm hoping for. Um, but also being able to work on really challenging problems and something that I actually find really beneficial. So I, I chose that over um, Lincoln Laboratory. Mm -hmm. um, it sounded like the jobs were pretty similar in that you would start a project from the beginning and follow along with your instrument until flight or launch. <clears throat> And um, but in terms of the actual applications, I thought that JPL was more in line with what I I cared about. So, did uh, location have anything to do with that? Oh yeah, um, <laughs> definitely. Because I grew up in southern Arizona, yeah. I don't know how to winter. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what's. You don't know what this what frozen is, water. What is it, yeah, <laughs> like I'm not a fan of being cold ever. So even I'll I'll wear jeans most days over the summer. Like I just can't deal with the cold. So I did have to really think about that. Um, even though Boston seemed to be like a really cool place to live over the summer, I didn't know what it would be like over the winter. So. I think it's pretty cold. Yeah. Jeez, lived there and, he, and they said it wasn't. Their favorite. Okay. But, but I mean, I guess that is a, that bias from growing up in Southern Arizona. Right. So. When you're used to sunshine every day and <laughs> yeah. hot temperatures and yeah. So I, I think that LA, um, even though it's huge and if you want to go do a thing, you have to deal with, you know, four million other people wanting to do the same <laughs> thing. Um, <laughs> at least it's going to be warm and mm. there are actually plenty of things to do. So um, I'm kind of excited. It's weird to be done with school because I've been in school my whole adult life. So I have to be like a real person now, um, with like actual bills and things. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to take some time to adjust, but I'm sure it's going to be great. But you also won't be on the grad student budget. Yes. Yes. Which is something we all dream about. Yeah. <laughs> um, Except that I'm moving to LA, so, yeah, where, <laughs> where the cost of living is extremely right. high. We're all calibrated to <laughs> Tucson prices, yeah. and Tucson, I mean, pay for I don't know a two bedroom apartment. And it's eight hundred dollars a month, whereas there for a one bedroom, it's like twenty two hundred a month. So, well. yeah, it's a uh, it's quite the change, but. I'll figure it out somehow. Yeah, we'll <laughs> yeah. see. Yeah. <laughs> if I hate it, I can always come back. <laughs> well, so, cool. Yeah. That's really exciting. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you have any tips or advice for this? Well, this is going to be a really broad question. For people thinking about going to grad school uh, or who are currently in grad school. Okay. Um, What's sort of thinking about going to grad school? Okay. So if you're thinking about going to grad school, I guess the big question is, is whether or not you enjoy happiness. 
happiness. <laughs> <laughs> what is happiness? Um, uh, if you really enjoy um, diving into a problem, right? Mm-hmm. If you can work independently and if you enjoy critical thinking, um, then I'd say it's a good idea. Sometimes a lot of people start graduate school thinking that they want a PhD and finds that the type of job that they actually do enjoy is more uh, suited for them if they had a master's. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people will just make that change. And that's totally fine. Do do what makes you happy, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But if you are really passionate about something, if you really want to know something really well um, and prove to yourself maybe that you can do it, I would say... PhD is pretty good. Hmm. Um, there are definitely times in graduate school where I felt um, disenchanted <laughs> and thought maybe I would just leave and getting really tired of the problems that you couldn't yeah. ever figure out. Um, it felt like you're kind of just, you kept digging this hole <laughs> and yeah. getting absolutely nowhere. There's no China. So... <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, there, I, it's just, yeah, I don't know. I hope I answered that okay. I'm not saying it's easy by any means. I don't think anyone's claiming that. <laughs> um, but now having been done, it's interesting to look back and, and see that you can persevere. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good way to put it in that at some point, you're, you're, if you go to grad school, at some point you're going to be forced to define for yourself why are you here? Exactly. Because it's easy to go into it and be like, oh, I wanted to come to get a PhD. Mm-hmm. Or I wanted to come to publish this work. And at some point, when nothing's happening for a long time, or when th- when you keep getting bad results, whatever the case may be, your machine seems to be possessed, mm-hmm. you have to say, like, why am I actually here? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that's... And you should consider that before you come here even more so. (laughs) Right. But, you know, it's hard to know all the problems that are going to happen. Right. Yeah, because some people just got the idea, but then they just change. Right. And, you know, and I understand that life happens sometimes. There are things that happen that will prolong your stay and that will Mm -hmm. make it feel worse than it really is. Um, And then also don't compare yourself to people. That's a big thing, and that's really hard to do, especially when you're in a college filled with brilliant students, right? And you're like, oh, well, they're progressing. They're publishing. Why can't I get my stuff published, and why am I getting the results I'm getting? Mm-hmm. Um, but I found that once you're, like, independent, you, you stop caring about what other people are doing, you know, and you do focus on why you're here and why you want to do this, and then it goes a lot better. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, and any, any tips for... I get, so you said hiking for like dissertation. This is a big one. So <laughs> oh, so for, okay. So I absolutely hate writing. So the way that I, I, my routine when I was writing my dissertation was a little extreme. I felt like I was being a robot, but I would, I'd wake up and I work out <laughs> and then have a small breakfast. And then I would work for four hours and that would just be either making figures, which I love making figures. That was always a good way to get started. And so start off with something like the low-hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. Start with that. And then you can start writing about those figures. So you can kind of make an outline with those figures and then fill in the words. And then I would do that for four hours. And then most of the time I'd be like dead tired, can't think anymore, cross-eyed, whatever. And then I would go for a hike. And luckily Gates Pass is like 30 minutes away. So I would go for a quick hike mm-hmm. and then come back and basically do the same thing. And then eat, work out, go to bed. So it was like... Workouts in the morning to wake myself up, 
and then work out in midday to kind of like yeah. have a refresher and then work out at night to make myself tired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was like the way to do it, which yeah. was probably extreme. But honestly, it was one of the healthier ways to get through your dissertation, yeah. I think. Yeah. <laughs> honestly, it sounds like And then um, when it comes to, it's funny because I, I, I maintained that for a while, but then it's basically two weeks before your defense where you start really freaking out. and there's not much you can do to stop a lot of the anxiety if you're an anxious person um so for me it was like the working out helped a lot with that if I was really anxious I had to go do something Mm -hmm. um instead of thinking that I'm gonna fail they're gonna fail me (laughs) um which is hard it's hard to get that out of your head but um I think the biggest thing to remember when you're approaching your defense is that it's actually a joyous occasion Right. It's signifying yeah. that your advisor thinks you're, you're done. They've been reading your work this whole time and they, they think that you're ready. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's really no reason for you to be so scared. Um, and I invited maybe too many people to my defense, <laughs> but it was really great to see that whole room filled with everyone that loves me. Mm-hmm. And you just see everyone just smiling at you and basically yeah. being super encouraging during the whole thing. So it's really just a nice, joyous finale mm-hmm. of graduate school. Way more climactic than Great. comps. <laughs> like after you pass comps and you're like, oh, really? Yeah. All right, that's it, <laughs> right? Yeah. You're like, now I have a lot of work I have to finish. Yeah. Um, but now, now that when you actually have your hand shaken and you're like called Dr. Bradley, then you're like, oh, now it's actually done. This is weird. (laughs) So yeah, I think don't freak out about the defense. Everyone wants you to pass. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's mostly just a celebration. Yeah. So I I didn't realize that until it was done basically. And I wish that I knew that before (laughs) or felt that before. I knew that technically. It's just that it's hard convincing yourself. Convincing yourself is really difficult. So well, cool. So I think that probably does it. Uh, thanks for coming in and talking to us. Yeah, thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah. Thank you. Good luck. Good luck. Thanks. As always, thank you for listening to this week's episode. We look forward to any comments or feedback you may have. To leave a comment, please visit our website at loft.optics.arizona.edu slash podcast or our Facebook, which is SPL Report. Additionally, you can email us at thespotlightreport at gmail.com. Lastly, we would like to mention that we are always looking for new topics or people to interview. So if you have a topic that you would like us to cover, please let us know. Thank you and have a good week.